welcome to episode 86 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Jetta Wong, president of JLW Advising and senior fellow in the Energy Program at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Jetta is a thought leader in energy and environment policy, program, and project development. Her love and strong respect for the important role that science and technology plays in solving the world's energy and environmental issues and the nation's security, competitiveness, and other economic challenges drives her focus on technology transfer, commercialization, and energy innovation. Jetta served as presidential appointee of the Obama administration for four years at the U.S. Department of Energy, where she co-chaired the White House's National Science and Technology Council's Lab to Market Initiative, devoted to creating economic impact from federally funded R&D. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and with me today I have Jetta Wong, President at JLW Advising and Senior Fellow in the Energy Program at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Jetta, welcome to the Climate Champions. It is wonderful to be here, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. We've been trying to get this together, and I know we wanted to wait a while to get past all the election chaos. That's right. Election chaos over. Yeah, we are officially declaring it over. (laughs) We have the authority. Yes. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment when you decided you wanted to do something about it? The motivating moment for me really happened when I was very young. So I feel like I've been a climate and energy and environment activist since I was born. But the real first moment came when I took this trip to Canada. It was at the recommendation of my older brother, who I love dearly because of this trip. And it was a trip to Quetico Provincial Park, which is the Canadian side of Boundary Waters above Minnesota. And it was a nine-day canoeing and backpacking trip where you had to literally kind of like swing the canoe up onto your shoulders and carry your backpack across islands to the next river or lake or pond. And at the end of the nine-day trip, the guide that was taking us through took us through a clear cut. I had never seen a clear cut before, actually took us through two. And it was one that was about 10 years old and another one that was fresh probably from that year. And it basically changed my life because I had just gone through this most amazing experience and seeing animals that I'd never seen and living without power, without phones, you could drink the water from the lake and then started to see the devastation of these clear cuts. And it was bulldozed all the way down to the rock and there were just stumps as far as I could see. And it really impacted me as a teenager. And from then on, I've always been engaged in environment and climate change. Wow. What are your current personal drivers? What motivates you now to get up every day and fight the fight? Great question. And that really happened when I started working for the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. 
I had already been working in the energy and environment field for probably about five years, and I was working on mostly regulations related to the renewable fuel standard, an advocate trying to figure out how do you make those standards work. But when I started working for the science committee, I was meeting with all these amazing companies and they would tell me about how they had this new great technology that was going to solve a real customer problem or had a market driver and there was going to be a reduction in costs. And then I'd also meet with scientists and the scientists would talk about science completely differently. They would talk about the discoveries that they were making and they would talk about how important it was to like test the materials and the conversations were completely different. And what I realized was that if we were ever going to have new technologies developed to meet our climate demands and to really mitigate climate change, we would actually need to bring those two sides together. And that's what motivates me today is closing what people call the valley of death, to bring new technologies from early stage discovery to a commercial product that's reducing carbon emissions. That is super important. In my early days, I used to be referred to as a spanner because I can talk to one group and translate to another group and back and forth and make things happen that way. Exactly. It was amazing because you would have these companies, they would talk about the same kind of science and same kind of technologies, but in a completely different way than the scientist. And I loved hearing both of them. The scientists were amazing and inspiring, but at the same time, you're like, well, that discovery is never going to make it into the market because it costs too much. So what I've worked my whole career now on is really figuring out how you close that gap, how you take a science project in the lab all the way to a product that is commercialized by the private sector and bringing the different players across the innovation cycle together so they can speak the same language and making sure that they all have the resources and the financial expertise to do those things, which will get technologies into the market. When you meet people that don't understand climate change, don't understand the data, how do you explain it to them or convince them that this is something we have to take seriously? That's a really good question and sad that we still have to talk about that. But quite honestly, what I find is that it's really important to really listen to people and talk to them about things that they care about. And when you start having these conversations and listening to people, you start to understand that they care about the same things. They care about jobs. They care about reducing pollution. They care about competitiveness in the United States. And when you start talking about those things, people start to realize that if you are working on climate-related technologies, renewables, and efficiency, you can have the same outcomes. And so I try to talk to people about the things that they care about and help them understand that that also is about climate mitigation. You already talked about how you go about mitigating climate change by being a spanner. Beyond that, what do you do? Yeah, good question. Because as a spanner, you have to figure out what is your role in the innovation cycle. So what I do is I work with laboratories and universities, entrepreneurs and startups and organizations like incubators and accelerators to help them develop policies and programs that really bridge that gap. I also work a lot with policymakers because federal policy and state policy really help move technologies to the market. And so, for example, let me give you an example of something that I've been working on for the last year or so. In May of last year, through the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, 
my co-author David Hart and I, we published a paper on a Department of Energy Foundation. It would be a new tool in the toolbox for the federal government in our country to develop new technologies. It would have as its mission to increase U.S. competitiveness in a carbon-constrained world by commercializing new technology. Now, it's a policy idea because to do it, we need it to be created by Congress and we need the federal government to establish it. But what it would do, it would work in communities through regional innovation partnerships to bring all of those innovation players together, those universities and those private sector companies that are needed to commercialize technology by helping to fund incubators and universities and startups that are really the ones working on developing those new technologies. So that's a policy example of some of the things that I work on. How has the pandemic influenced how you go about doing what you do? The pandemic's been very difficult for everyone all around the world. But what it's given me an opportunity to do is really think about how there are potential similarities to how we're dealing with the pandemic and how we deal with climate change. And because I'm an innovation person, I'm thinking about what are the innovations that are going on and what can we learn from this? And by far, we do not know everything yet. And there will need to be a very good look back at what we've learned from the COVID crisis and the pandemic. And one of the things that I think we're going to look at is manufacturing. At the very beginning, and even now, we are hearing every day about how difficult it is to manufacture the vaccine. We heard at the very beginning that we had problems with not having enough ventilators and masks and other PPE. And the fact that we didn't have those things in the United States really put us at a disadvantage. And in this case, caused death, which is terrifying. But what can we learn from that? Are we going to have problems or are we already having problems as it relates to new technology that we need to mitigate climate change? We know that we have a lot of our solar panels manufactured in other countries. We know that we have a lot of our batteries manufactured in other countries. What should we be doing in the United States to make sure our manufacturing of clean energy products is robust? and able to handle anything that goes on. Let me give you an example. We have seen a horrible winter storm in Texas where millions of people have lost power and their infrastructure was just not up to this extreme weather. Transformers have completely blown. And these are things that we have known in the past to be very, very long time cycles to get developed. In 2018, the Department of Energy released a report saying that at times, 85% of our transformers are imported from other countries. It takes eight to 12 months to get these transformers. The report was focused on a strategic transformer reserve, and we need to have those kinds of things in the United States. But we also need to have the manufacturing capability to be able to build those when we need them. And so that's something that we should be thinking about today. The other thing that the COVID pandemic really makes me think about is the fact that we have amazing science and technology expertise in the United States. And the fact that we were able to get a vaccine in 10 months 
when it usually takes 10 to 15 years to get a vaccine is something that we should all be in awe of. And we need to be doing the same thing when it comes to new energy technologies. We need to understand how did we accelerate the vaccine development? What were the public-private partnerships that were developed to move those technologies from discovery science to a real product that was saving people's lives? And I think that there are a lot of lessons learned from that, one of which is the fact that the mRNA that is used in the Pfizer vaccine and in the Moderna vaccine had been researched, basic science kind of research, for 10 to 15 years before we ever knew what it could be used for. And it is an argument to keep funding basic science in our country because we never know what kind of technologies we will need in an emergency. And we need to do the same thing for all basic science because we could use something new for the next clean energy technology. So I think both the scary lesson learned of we need to have better manufacturing in the United States and the very exciting lessons learned that we can accelerate the development of new technology are the things that I'm thinking about when we're talking about climate change. I couldn't agree with you more. One of the companies that I'm on the board of has a new solar material. It's a total game changer as far as cost and ease of installation and where it can go. It can go anywhere. But it's quite a challenge to continually raise money. And it's, it's some serious science. So it's something that isn't going to happen overnight. But if they had access to real money, they could definitely speed up that timeline 5x. If we're really serious about finding climate change, I do think we need to find a way to fund scientific product advances. Absolutely. And when it comes to these technologies where it's an actual product, a hardware product, a hard science product, you need to test it. You need to validate it. You need to pilot it. And that takes time. It also takes an infrastructure of very high value, unique facilities which in the United States, we have been maintaining through the Department of Energy's National Laboratories and other federal laboratories for a very long time. But what we need to do in the United States is make them more accessible to startups and entrepreneurs that are discovering these new technologies and these new materials. And that's something else that it takes policy and programs to really implement those kinds of streamlining access to those facilities. They have to fight to get time to test their stuff, it's true. And they really want to buy their own, but that would be expensive. So they can't buy their own until they can show it totally works. But that just delays the time that it takes to get it to that point. And I don't think we have that time. Exactly. Can you talk about your journey to get where you are today? So now I'm a consultant. And as I said, I work with all these great companies and labs and universities that have taught me quite a bit about the innovation cycle. Before this, as I mentioned, I was on the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee, which really gave me an opportunity to learn about the scientific infrastructure of the United States and the amazing scientists and engineers at those facilities that really keep our country going, which is just fantastic. After working for the Science Committee, I worked for the U.S. Department of Energy, which was amazing. I was a political appointee in the Obama administration and my first job in the administration was in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. And I was an advisor to Assistant Secretary David Danielson. And he worked on creating this new initiative called the Clean Energy Manufacturing Initiative. And I was very lucky to be working with him then. I was from Michigan. 
And he knew I cared about manufacturing. And so it gave me an opportunity to work on something that is extremely important to me because when I was growing up, we had auto manufacturers in Michigan. I actually remember when I was young, there's a street in Lansing called Saginaw Street. And on Saginaw Street at this one area, there used to be an old GM facility. It was a GM facility actually on both sides of the road. And all around these GM facilities, there were stores and small manufacturers and gas stations that really were part of the community because there was this huge GM facility there. But as I grew up and as I would go back to Lansing to visit my family from college, the GM facility closed and all of these small manufacturers closed and the gas stations closed. And, and now if you go back to this site in Lansing, there are no more GM facilities there. It's actually just a plain open parking lot and the buildings around it have leasing signs and for sale signs. And so I had told Dave this story and he knew that I cared about manufacturing. And so this is one of the reasons why I still work on manufacturing is because I want to see new jobs brought back to Lansing and to the Rust Belt, which I think people call now the tech belt, which I love because I do think that we can create new green jobs by bringing good manufacturing back to our country. I don't know how we're going to bring manufacturing back, but I do think it's so important and it would be amazing if you could help make that happen. It's so important. Yes. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had in your career? Probably the biggest setback that I had in my career happened because of the 2016 election. I completely expected that I would stay in federal policy in Washington, D.C. and continue to focus on how you transfer new technologies to the marketplace. But I didn't. After the election, I moved to Oakland, California, and it was actually a wonderful experience for me. I stayed working on technology transfer and the commercialization of new technology, but what made the experience great was the fact that I was working with entrepreneurs and I was working with incubators and I was on the ground in cities that were trying to manufacture more new technologies. And so it became a really good learning experience for me. Every person in Washington, D.C. needs to spend a little more time out of D.C. and in communities to hear what they need and what their real problems are. Because it gave me a completely different perspective coming back to Washington, D.C. and trying to figure out what policies are needed to help these communities bring manufacturing back to them, bring new jobs back to them and to mitigate climate change. So I asked about setbacks, but that sounds like it was a huge success. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that everyone gets a little bit of setback that turns into a success. Me too. Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? I am most proud of the development of the Office of Technology Transitions. We turned a secretarial memo to create the office into what is now a six-year-old office with a $17 million budget, plus a $30 million technology commercialization fund, and a, I think, 12 to 15 person staff. I don't know if people understand how difficult it is to create a brand new office in a gigantic bureaucracy. We didn't even have an office space. We were very lucky to have a very supportive secretary. Secretary Moniz believed in this idea and we made it happen. And when I say we, I mean the career team that was dedicated and is still dedicated to the Office of Technology Transitions. I feel 
amazed every day at the work that they are doing because I still talk to national laboratories and incubators and they're developing new programs and activities and policies that we had never talked about. So I know that it's continuing and it's being successful because people are talking about it and they don't even know that I was the first director of the Office of Technology Transitions. So I am very proud of the work of the team at the Department of Energy and the Office of Technology Transitions. When you look at the future for our country, our world, 20, 30, 40 years out, what do you see with regards to climate change? So in 20 years, it'll be 2041. We should have, as President Biden has said, and I believe we can do it, a fully decarbonized power sector. And I do think that that is possible. We should, in 2051, which puts us 30 years out, a fully net zero economy. Those are the big goals. And I do think that we can get there. For me, thinking about closing the valley of death, trying to bring new technologies from discovery science project to a product in the market, what I envision is policies and programs that are enabling communities to engage in the commercialization of new technology. I see regional clusters that have deep expertise in specific technologies that will mitigate climate change, that are working with investors and scientists and engineers and entrepreneurs to pilot those technologies in their own communities and deploy them in their own communities because it is the community, it is on the ground people that need to benefit from these technologies being developed. I also hope to see a more open innovation infrastructure. We talked earlier about all the important facilities that entrepreneurs need to access to test and validate their technologies. Right now, it's a little difficult to work with those facilities. It's becoming better, but I would like to see a more open infrastructure where we have entrepreneurs and startups and private sector working hand in hand with federal scientists to develop those new technologies. In 30 years, in 2051, I want to see and I envision because of these new technology developments and because of more engagement in communities with scientists and technologists, I hope to see that there's more trust in our scientific infrastructure and in science coming out of the government. I envision that because I think that we can get on the ground and solve real problems, real energy problems, real environmental problems by bringing science to those communities, helping them solve those problems. I'm often excited that we live in a time when we have discovered so many things and know so many things about how to mitigate climate change so that we can do something about it. Because if this happened 40 years ago on the timeline, we wouldn't have the capability to do anything about it and to respond. But at the same time, I'm a little nervous because I feel we've lost ground with regards to trusting science. And I think that is now a battle we have to fight that we didn't have to fight before. I think you're right. And I think part of it is because we don't engage as individuals, as people in our own communities, we don't often engage with scientists. In some instances, people put scientists up in their ivory towers, and that's not how science should be. And the federal government should be funding science, helping people in their own communities, solving the problems that they have, helping them through science and technology. 
we have done that in the past and we can do that again. There are tons of examples, whether or not it is related to the winter storm that's going on in Texas or the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, or the fires in California, where we can be thinking about and using science to better predict what's going to happen, to solve those problems, to develop technologies that can clean up those problems, but it has to be community-driven. And by bringing scientists into those conversations, I think that people will trust more because they will see how science is helping them. You talked about by 2041 being fully decarbonized in the energy sector. But from my perspective, we can go a lot faster to get to 70% or 80% than we can get the remaining amount. So I would rather focus on in the next five years or 10 years getting to 70 or 80%. Part of the problem is that we have only been focused on the 70%. And we have not spent as much time focused on the other 30%. I agree. There are really three problems, a short-term, a medium-term, and a long-term. In the short-term, we should be going as hard as we can with existing technology to get the first hunk done. At the same time, we need brain power focused on what comes next after we get to the point where we can't just deploy the old stuff. At the same time, working on how do we top it off you know, at the end. So it's really multiple plans that work together to get us to fully... It is multiple plans. I would say that I'm worried that we only focus on the 70% when I know through technology innovation to get us that other 30%, you need to start today because it's going to take you at least 10 years to have those technologies in 2030. So you can't just focus on the 70%. Boom. Completely agree. What's one piece of advice that you would give to somebody that wanted to help? So the one piece of advice that I would give to people is to volunteer. I believe that we do not have enough empathy in our country anymore. And I, through my time volunteering, have realized that not everyone sees the world the same way I see the world. And sometimes I need to put myself in a position to see the world through their eyes. And when you volunteer, you do something that is very selfless. And so I think more people need to go out and volunteer, whether or not it is river cleanups or scientists teaching STEM education, take some time to go and volunteer. And I think that that would help us with empathy in our country, and that would help us have a more civil conversation about climate change. Do you have any questions for me? Lee, you've done 85 of these interviews. What's the best advice you've heard someone suggest? That's easy. Volunteer more. But the advice I've heard most often, number one, vote climate change, because if you vote that way, you'll help it actually happen. And that's something simple that everybody could do. Number two, drive less. And when you drive, drive in a more efficient vehicle. And three, eat lighter on the planet. If you can't go plant-based fully, Try doing it for one day a week or two days a week just to lessen the load on what we're really asking the planet to do in that regard. So those are my top three. How's that? Top three. I like it. I like all of them. They're great. They're not mine. They're from other people. Is there anything else you'd like to say? So my message for anyone that's working on technology development, because we need to work on technology development to mitigate climate change, is don't think you can do it by yourself. 
If I've learned anything about the innovation process, it's about collaboration and partnership. Go find people that can help you do whatever it is you're trying to do. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. Canoeing in Canada, loving how Mother Nature did adorn the park her brother told her about, environmentalist, and she was born. It was a life-changing trip, but you had to say what when you saw the devastation of your first clear cut? We may be getting better, but the problem persists. We've got to get technologists talking to scientists. You create policy to make us a competitive nation. That's why you helped create the innovative foundation. For most of the solar panels we buy. Our money has to roam. We have to get to the point where we manufactured them from home. You appreciate your time at the DOE when you worked for efficiency and renewable energy. Jetta spends her time opening doors, helping community scientists and entrepreneurs. When talking about your proudest successful mission, it was when you created the Office of Technology Transition. To get a robust manufacturing recovery, we're going to need enhanced scientific discovery. We've got so much amazing scientific power, but they can't spend their time in an ivory tower. Jetta said it already, but I'm gonna be repetitive. We need science and technology if we're gonna be competitive. If we're gonna solve climate change, then we must re-establish community scientific trust. Oh my God, that was amazing. I love it! Jetta remembering back to her days in Michigan, with good manufacturing jobs and numerous businesses supported by those workers, was not only touching, but a strong reminder of the need to invest in the science and technology that create the jobs of the present and the future. Solar, wind, energy storage, fuel cells, energy efficiency, electric vehicles, and clean energy infrastructure will create millions of jobs, including manufacturing. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. By spanning the knowledge and language gap between scientists, technologists, and businesses, Jetta ensures great ideas and scientific research result in commercialization, businesses, and jobs that help mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm.